Welcome back all. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is super to have you back. How? Ah, works every time. Wonderful to have you guys back here tonight. How many have been here all three weeks? Three weeks. Well, congratulations. That's great. Now, I don't know if you heard or not, but um, Alpha is typically 10 weeks, but you guys are so advanced. Um, This is only going to be an eight-week Alpha, so, but uh, I'm not sure you're so advanced, but it is only going to be just, we have some scheduling issues, and so we're going to make this an eight-week Alpha. A couple things real quick. How many of you still own a CD player? CD players, any CD players? Like, wow. They don't even put them in the cars anymore, right? They do not come. Anyway, if you would like, I'm, I'm feeding back just a little bit here, Mike, just a little bit. Uh, if you would like um, CDs of the previous weeks and tonight, those will be available downstairs. Or you can always go to the Lakeview Christian Center YouTube channel and you can watch those. And, of course, we've got folks watching from Virginia tonight and maybe from German as well. Um, I don't know how to say anything in German. Um, Fraulein? Is that, Fra- is that German? Fraulein? Okay. Um, so, um, hey, a couple things real quick I wanted to tell you about is, I mentioned to you last week, it's not too late to be a part of the, Cher- the Cherish Marriage Workshop, which is here on Thursday nights with dinner. would love for you to come. If you'd like to know more about that, you can either talk to Annette or me or anybody at your table, and we can get you registered. We've got a room for about four more couples, I think. And then this weekend at Lakeview, there is a women's retreat Friday night and Saturday uh, it's going to be fantastic time for ladies. So, thank you, Gail. Uh, just so, ladies, if you would like to be a part of this, I think the registration is $65. There's dinner, there's breakfast, there's, I think there's lunch. There's, it's, it's amazing. I think there's house cleaning for those of you ladies who want to do that. So, um, but anyway, would love for you to be a part of that. Ask anybody around here. You can, if you want to go to LakeviewChristianCenter.com, um, it's going to be a great time. So if you're looking for something just to you and God and hang out with some other ladies, it will be a super time for you to do that. Well, we are in the third week of Alpha. Um, wow. And as we've discussed in our previous couple of weeks, a major aspect by, by the way, first-timers, I'm sorry for not asking. Anybody first-time tonight? I know Lisa is here. I knew that. And Karen are here for first time. Yes? Thank you. Um, so um, a major aspect of Alpha, a major purpose of Alpha is to encourage us to think about not just what we believe, but why do I believe what I believe? Why am I... Now, this, I told you, is my portable dash in line... So, you know, in this physical lineage of this physical life, which is just so short, you guys have told me that you believe there's most of you, you believe there's something on the other side of your last heartbeat that's going to last forever. And so if we believe something's going to last forever, it would seem that we would spend a decent amount of time trying to figure out what's going to determine where I'm going to spend the other side of my last heartbeat forever. And so... What we're here, what Alpha is about is giving us an opportunity to do something that many of us have never done growing up, something I never did, and that's find out what's in the Bible. And as I've told you and I've expressed to you many times, don't believe a word I'm telling you. 
make sure what I'm saying backs up with what the Bible says. Now, you may not believe the Bible. Okay, well, maybe you want to find out to see if there really is enough evidence to support that. Week five, we're going to go into some more evidence about the Bible as well. So, uh, so it, at least we're going to find out what's in it because m- like 98% of you raised your hand on the first week that we're here saying, I did not read the Bible. And if you were like me, I didn't know what the Bible was. And so the problem is this. We get into life and we get at a 90 miles an hour and we go 90 miles an hour and we're just going into life and job and career and marriage and kids and all the things that take place and, and we just leave a lot to assumption and we just end up judging too quickly or judging without enough evidence. And, you know, so I wanted to share with you a few videos to drive home the point that judging prematurely or without enough evidence or maybe judging with a bias could bring us to the wrong conclusion. Not even a Vietnamese restaurant. It's really. That was. I apologize to any Vietnamese in the audience. Please. Sir, you have a little something between your teeth right there. This has a fractured fibula. Give him a mouth center. So he can be able to go in tomorrow. Daddy's going to be so excited. Okay, so I hope you are not judging too quickly, and I trust you're not because you're back. Um, But here's a fair question, I think, to ask ourselves. Have we assumed things about Jesus and the Bible without thoughtfully or critically examining what we're banking our forever on? And it's just so true of so many of our lives. As I said, we just get moving at a fast, fast pace and don't really sit down and think about these things. And simply assuming about God begs, it begs this question. And, And just so think about this here. Is my faith position about who God is and his acceptance of me based on my definition of who God is or God's definition of who God is. Now think about that for a minute. Who has determined your definition of God? Is it you or is there something bigger whereby we can find out 
and examine who is this God that most of us believe in. It's a faith position. Have I thought or have I presumptuously assumed? And personally, as I told you, I had, I had sincerely assumed and found that I was sincerely wrong, though sincere. Now, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Growing up, I grew up in a traditional New Orleans religious upbringing. Um, but my theology, now you know what theology is, theos, logeo, theo, God, study of, the study of God. My theology was really more me-ology. Okay? It was more about me. I constructed a God. Now think about this. Maybe you've done this yourself. I constructed a God that more suited me. He was manageable. He didn't give me a hard time about things. Um, and so uh, that's the kind of God that I constructed in my meology. And so, and so I, I worshipped the BVM. Now I don't know about you guys, but you probably worship some of that. Do you, do you know the BVM, right? You're familiar with the BVM? The BVM is, is the the blessed vending machine, right? You know, the, the heavenly vending machine. And the way in which you worship the, the blessed vending machine is by putting together as much currency of your good works as you possibly can so that when you need something from God, the blessed vending machine, you just kaplunk in, you know, through your good works bank account, the things that you need. And so really when that happens, you think about this. God is my cosmic butler. My good works determine what God has to do for me and what he can't do. And in this situation, actually, I find myself greater than God because I demand that what I've done right puts God under the pressure of having to perform for me. And so that was my meology, and I have my own meology, and you probably have your own urology. Your, your, own, your own meology is probably what I should have said. So, um, so my good works pay God's salary. It's his job to bless me with my good works. Um, he owes me. Now, we would never say that so dogmatically as I just did. But if we take a moment to think about that, that really is where we can find ourselves. Have you ever thought about that? When you feel like God owes you, or maybe not God owes you, but you've been good. Why? I mean, have you ever put your fist in the sky and said, why me, God? And so it's important for us to find out, okay, what about the Bible? What does the Bible say about Jesus? And tonight, I'd say the most important question, why did Jesus die? And this, and this question, why did Jesus die? If there's any question we ever have to get right, if what the Bible says is true, it is this. We have to get the answer to this question correct, if what the Bible says is true. I'm going to call on C.S. Lewis throughout most of Alpha, but this staunch atheist become a devoted follower of Christ wrote this. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. Now think about that. If it's, if it's false, it's of no importance. Like I said last, last week, it's dangerous. It's deceived billions of people through the millennia. 
But if it's true, it's of infinite importance. There could be nothing more important if Christ is resurrected from the dead. The one thing it can't be is, eh. Now, do you know what my Christianity was? Eh. That's what it was. And this is why. This, this quote by John Stott, author, Bible teacher, he said, the reason why so many people give the wrong answers to questions about the cross, in other words, why Jesus died, and even ask the wrong questions, is that, this was me, they have carefully considered neither the seriousness of sin, self-centeredness, I want it my way, neither considered the seriousness of sin, nor the majesty of God. That was me. I had never, I was not judging myself seriously with my rebellion. So I was minimizing my self-centeredness, but I was also minimizing the holiness and the majesty of God if this God of the Bible is the, the one true God. And that's just something that really hit me hard. I had never given any consideration that God had a different perspective than I, one that would conflict with my perspective of him because I had no clue that the Bible contradicted my meology because I had no clue of what the Bible had to say. And so what we're going to do is we're going to just spend a little time looking at what does the Bible have to say about why Jesus died. So there's a problem that we have. The Bible says the problem is this. God is holy. That means he is 365, 24-7, holy. There's never a time that he's not holy, thrice holy. You and me, not so much. But the Bible says that we have fallen short of that which allows God to accept him as we have been self-centered and, if you will, unholy. Paul writes in the third chapter of his letter to the church at Rome. Now, you know, this is, Paul's writing to the first century church in Rome. This is not the, the Roman Catholic church. He's writing to Romans in the first century church. The third chapter, the 23rd verse, he says this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, there's a fascinating word, the Greek word all. When you translate the Greek word all, you may want to write this down. The Greek word for all is all. Okay, you may want to, A- Okay, it, it, means, it means everyone, okay, all of us. Now, I don't mind the collective all. What I don't like is when it gets personal, like Anne has sinned. Anne has been self-centered. Donnie has sinned. Jim, Mark has, um, Richard, definitely, Richard has, okay. Again, and, and, so what do you mean sin? Has lied, has stolen, has coveted, has lusted, has, has all these things that call, uh, cause us to fall short of that which is acceptable to God. That's what the Bible says. And that God, God's only acceptable score, if this is a test, is 100% from us 100% of the time. How good a news is this? Correct. This is not good news. This is not good news at all. And then Paul also, in the 10th chapter of his letter to the church in Rome, there is none righteous, not even one. 
Okay, none. That means, so all have sinned and none is right. None is right before God. That word righteous there in the Greek is literally, it's a, it's a legal judicial term. It means not guilty. It means innocent. So there is none not guilty. Not even one. Not even one. Of this wonderful room of people, every one of us in here, every one of us, we have done our own thing. We've wanted to do it our way. And as a result, we, are not, we find ourselves, according to what the Bible says, unacceptable to God. We're not right. Not even one. So biblical righteousness, as I said, is a legal judicious term for being not guilty. That's that word righteous. Another word for that is just or justified. So that's biblical righteousness. Now, meological righteousness, okay, meological righteousness would be a validating performance record, okay? A record of performance where I, in my own mind, believe I am validated because of my efforts. That's how I earn my acceptance before God, I hope, by trying to be good enough. And, you know, many assert and believe that the, the way we're accepted by God is through keeping the Ten Commandments. Now, how many of you have kept all Ten Commandments? Come on, don't be shy, really. Maybe we will go to ten weeks. Maybe we will just expand this. Um, okay. How many of you know the Ten Commandments? Really, I am not going to test you, but I'm just going to... You may have just lied, and then... <laughs> So, uh, so, okay, so now, now here's an interesting, just an inter interesting piece of information here. Um, in, a, in a survey that was done a couple of years ago, I think it was like 1,007, it was a weird number, people were surveyed asking uh, how many know the Ten Commandments. I was surprised to see that 14% of those 1,000 plus people knew all Ten Commandments. That's like, so there's about 140 people knew the Ten Commandments. So 14% of that surveyed group, but 80%, 80% knew two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. And so what that told me is that, oh, you're going to love this. It's so cute. Okay. More people were less people rather were familiar with how to get through the pearly gates than to get through the golden arches. Is that cute or what? Thank, thank you. Tiffany? It's cute, thank you. Okay. I almost got the laugh track on that one, but you covered for me. So, let's just get this off of here. Okay. Um, so, so, the question is really how... Think about this. Now, look, this goes both ways. How good do you really think you are? Now... There may be some of you here tonight, and I get this. Maybe you think, don't talk to me about good. I've done some really horrible things, and I don't see really any way that God could accept me. Okay? So this kind of swings both ways here. But I mean, how good do we think we are, or how bad do we think we are? Well, let me just tell you this. However bad you may think you are, or good you may think you are, you're worse than you think you are. Aren't you glad you came? Yeah. Well, so, okay, so let's just, let's just think about this. Let me just show you how this is really true. Imagine if 
there was a thought monitor that was put up over your head. You had a little USB port back here and just connected into the, the monitor and, you, and everybody could see everything you think, all right? And so everybody's working remote now, right? Everybody's, how, how many of y'all working remote? Haven't seen any coworkers in like a year or so. A few of you people? Yeah. None of you? Okay. Yeah. A couple of you. Um, so the boss calls in and says, uh, hey, you're not seeing, you're kind of late on getting some of these reports to me. Uh, what's going on? Well, the computer's been down and everything. And then, you know, there's this picture. You're vacuuming. You're painting your new bedroom. You're, you know, it's just, you know, it's just that thought monitor. Or, or maybe this, gentlemen, your wife has gone shopping. She's bought this dress. <laughs> She's, yeah, you're just in time, Jeff. This is a good one. Um, so your wife has gone shopping. She's, she's, and she wants to show you the new dress she bought. And so she goes in and she puts on the dress and she comes out and she shows you her dress. And she says, sweetheart, you don't think this dress makes my butt look big, do you? He says, oh, sweetheart, of course not. But on the monitor, it's a picture of a sausage factory and just sausage being jammed into the lining of, I mean, could you imagine, I mean, really, could you imagine if everyone's thoughts were known? I mean, the human race would be extinct, would it not? So, so the whole point around that stupidity is that we, the things that we think and meditate on, but would never do, are still a part of us. I had no idea that's what the Bible taught. So, so let's just talk about here that three things, the pollution, the pollution of self-centeredness or sin, the penalty and the partition, the separation so here's what Jesus is recorded as saying in the seventh chapter of Mark's gospel. Jesus said this, for from within, from, from within us, out of the heart. Now to the Jewish mind, the heart makes up the whole being, okay? So when the Jews thinks of the heart, they're thinking of everything that makes up me. Out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile or make impure, unholy, unacceptable the person. That's what Jesus says. And so there's a, he says that each and every one of us, I'm really going to hit this. I, you know, I say this every week, but come back next week. This is going to explain, I promise you, some of these things that we're going to talk about tonight a little bit more that I can't. So all these evil things, Jesus says, comes from within me and defile me. And so there's a pollution issue that we've got a problem. And then there's the penalty of sin. This is what Paul wrote to the Romans. For the wages, what are wages? Something you earn, right? For the wages of sin, self-centeredness, doing it my way, not God's way, is death. Now, death in the Bible is not annihilation. It's separation. Okay, big difference. And so when, if we go back to the Garden of Eden, 
and we go to the second chapter, God tells, God tells Adam, the day you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. And then later, third chapter, they believe the lie of the serpent that God's holding out on you. The day you eat of this, you're going to be like God. They, they buy the lie and they partake of the fruit, but they didn't fall over. Because they died spiritually. They died, were separated from God. And what happened after that? There began to be a separation between them, and there certainly is that in mankind today. And then the third death in that regard is eventually they died to themselves. They died physically. So they died in the relationship to God, their relationship with one another, the friction, the challenges of a relationship that were never there before. And then thirdly, physical death, physical death. And so there's a penalty of sin, the wages of sin. And then thirdly, the partition, this, this separation. This is in Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet in the Hebrew scriptures. He wrote, he lived about 700 years before Christ. And he says, behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save or deliver or rescue. Neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, your self-centeredness, you're wanting to be as God, you're wanting to do it your way, Frank Loria, have made a separation, brought death between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. So we have an internal pollution issue. We have the fact that our sin separates us from God. And there is a chasm, according to the Bible, there is a great chasm of separation that you and I have no capacity in and of ourselves to ford or to bridge. You know, it, it's interesting that C.S. Lewis said this. I think I brought this up in the first week because the, the issue is this. Think about this. In our relate, we have a line problem. Okay, now when I say line, you know what I'm talking about. Other side of our last heartbeat. But here's what the scripture says. If we have an answer to our line problem, which is separation from God forever, that has a tendency of fixing our dash problem. Did you understand what I just said? I didn't. Would somebody please repeat that? <laughs> if, if, we're, if I am afraid of, uncertain of what the future on the other side of my last heartbeat is. I mean, if you think about that for a while, that could create some anxiety. But if there could be, if what the Bible says is true and there is certainty of what happens on the other side of my last heartbeat in trusting God, that can make this short sojourn on this planet a whole lot more tenable, manageable. There could be much more peace in terms of knowing that God holds my eternity. So, and it's what, Lewis, it's what C.S. Lewis said. Aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you get neither. Fascinating statement. And all religions of validating performance record, right, of a record of performance that we believe, we hope validates us before God, deal with this chasm in one way. So I'm going to give you right now, I promise you a comparative religion uh, study, and here it is. World religions, all world religions versus the religion of 
Christianity. So, basically, every religion on the planet says this. Man is here. There's a separation. We feel that. You and I feel that. I don't need somebody to tell me that. I feel that. And some of us are maybe better than others, okay? And like I said, that is every religion. Just a few. Islam, Hinduism, Mormonism, Buddhism, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Confucianism, all of these. The ever-growing faith, though, is the one that is really into this is called whatever. That's the growing faith of... But, but Christianity says something completely different than that. It's, it says that God is here and God knows the plight of man and that man in his own efforts, unholy and self-centered as he is in his best efforts, will, cannot by definition reach a holy God. And so what God does because of his love for man sends his son to pay the penalty to, to bring our separation, there would be no longer any separation, and bring us together. In this situation, God initiates. In this situation, it's always man that is doing what he can, what she can, to try to do that which is impossible. And so what we do is we just start comparing ourselves to one another. I may not be perfect, but I'm not as bad as you. And this is, I mean, just again, this is how we think, okay? I may not go to church all the time, but I'm no terrorist, for heaven's sake. I mean, these are the things we do because we can't deal with the absolutism of God being perfectly holy and my being perfectly unholy. I mean, that, that presents a problem to us if we really think about that. And so, let's turn the corner the solution or the remedy to remove the separation. Again, believe it or not, this is what the Bible says. In Peter, 1 Peter, Peter's first letter to those who are followers of Jesus Christ, he says, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Okay, he himself bore our self-centeredness, our rebellion, our desire to do it, our way, he bore it, all of our rebellion in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. So here we go. We might die to sin. So death in the Bible means what? Separation. So that we'd be separated from sin. We'd be separated from unholiness. We'd be separated from all of that, even though I still am struggling in this body, God would work through the cross of his son in such a way that he would separate me from sin and I would become alive to being not guilty. It's almost like we got unplugged from death and got plugged into life. Let me just give you a little example here. This is a death plug. This is a life plug. Now, you know, many of, I think all of us are born with umbilical cords, right? Well, I don't know if you knew this or not, but there's a spiritual cord that, yeah, yeah, I don't think you knew this, doctor, did you? That, so there's a spiritual umbilical cord that you typically can't see, but I ask it to be visible tonight. And so when we're born physically, we're born physically alive, 
but we're born spiritually dead. We, we are born spiritually. This is really. Okay, we're born. I got to do this quickly. So we're born spiritually dead. We are basically umbilically spiritually dead. All right. But what happens? What happens when 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 we accept what Christ has done for us on the cross? We're we're unplugged from death and we are plugged into his life. It's not about trying to be a better version of me. It's an absolute separation from who I was. And next week, I promise you, you're going to see this a whole lot more clearly if you come. And, um, and so we get taken out of being separated from God. Christ does that through the cross is what the Bible says. And we get plugged into his life. And so let me see if I can just get this. Okay. So thank you for that's that stayed in place. Okay. So so do you see that? Totally removed, no more separation by trusting the work of Christ and not our own validating performance record. Peter wrote this as well, 1 Peter. He said, for Christ died for sins, our sins, our rebellion, once. He did it once. He only did it once. He's not doing it multiple times. Once for all, for all of our sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That means Christ, the righteous one, takes the place of you and me, the unrighteous ones. Why? Look at what Peter writes. To bring you to God. Think about this for a minute. Let these words soak in here. Why did he die for you? To bring you to God. Now, again, to forgive, to have my sins forgiven. Sure. Yes. But better than that. Just as good as that. Amazingly. To bring us into the presence of God. And no one is in the presence of God except one who is righteous and acceptable to him. Jesus brings us to God. It's not like, okay, I, I removed the separation, but you're a jerk, and I don't want to have anything to do with you until you're dead. That's not at all. It's so that you and I experience that union, that togetherness that God have, has always wanted us to have with him, but we were separated from when we decided to do things our way. And our meology ruled in our hearts. So, biblical Christianity says Jesus brings me to God based on his performance. I'm going to say it again. Biblical Christianity says that Jesus brings me to God based on his performance and my acceptance of it. Whereas my meology, I bring myself to God in my validating performance record. And um, I hope God will accept me, but the Bible disagrees with that. So either the Bible's right about my relationship with God, or I'm right with my relationship, determining my relationship with God. And something that just hit me like a ton of bricks was when Paul writes to the church, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in this area of Galatia. And this is, this is what he writes here. He says, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. 
For if keeping the law can make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. Okay, let's define a couple more terms here. I do not treat the grace of God. Now, again, a simple definition for the word grace would be unmerited favor. Okay, something you or I received that we did nothing in and of ourselves to earn. It's unmerited. Unmerited acceptance. Unmerited righteousness. Unmerited presence. So Paul says, I don't treat the grace of God as meaningless, as having no meaning or no importance. He's he's saying, I'm I'm not saying that. He's He's not setting it aside. He's not neutralizing it. He says, but if keeping the law can make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. I had never thought about that. So think about that. That means if you and I could be religious enough, moral enough, keep keep the laws enough, then God would accept me into heaven based on what I did. Now, if that was the case, Jesus could have just come down, given us a pep talk, right? Give us a few more moral codes or laws or whatever, cheered us on, patted us on the butt, and gone back to heaven. He did not have to be crucified. Think about that. If you and I could be good enough, now maybe we're trying to say, well, Jesus plus what I've done, that Bible doesn't give us any place for that at all. There was no need for Jesus to die. Easter would have been unnecessary if that were the case. I wrote here this. So Jesus did not come to simply be an example, impossible to emulate. This, this kind of takes us back to the C.S. Lewis quote from last week. He came to be our savior, validating performance record religion, gives us rules, laws, and moral codes for us to attempt to improve our self-determining meology. But validating performance record religion does not give us a savior to receive because in VPR religion, we don't need to be saved. We just need to be improved. A nice thought, but not a biblical thought. The Bible says all the improving of a million reincarnations will not improve you to perfection. And so I am either depending upon my efforts and myself and my performance, or I'm realizing, you know what? The best I can do is not good enough. Now, my pride does not like hearing that. I don't like hearing there's something I can't do that would not find me or hold me in God's good stead. Okay. It just happens to contradict what the Bible says. And for many years, I lived that way. I just lived that way. We don't need to be saved if we're trying to do it our way. We just need to be improved. But how improved? How good is good enough? And you don't know. And because you and I don't know, we hope we die on a good day, whatever that good day may be. Uh, we, we just hope we are, are in, a, in a good place. But the Bible says that Jesus accomplished for us what you and I could not accomplish for 
ourselves. And that he is a perfectly holy God in all of his ways. Let's do this. I want to just show you just some of the characteristics of the attributes of God. What is the Bible? How does the Bible describe God? The Bible says that God is love, and we have no problem with that. We kind of like the idea that God is love. We actually very much like that idea. God is holy. Okay, that means he is holy in everything he does. He is merciful. I'm grateful that God is merciful. This is, these are ways in which the Bible describes him. Um, he is wisdom. He is ultimate, perfect wisdom. The Bible also calls him knowledge. He is omniscient. He knows everything. He is patient. I am grateful that he is patient. The Bible tells us that he is patient. But he is also one other thing of the many other things that there are, and that is he is justice. That bothers me a little bit. That should bother all of us a little bit. So, so how... How can a perfect God who cannot in any way compromise who he is at any time, or he would be this and not this? How can he be 100% of who he is 100% of the time and accept somebody like me? It's a great question. Who asked that question? It's a really good question. Thank you. Um, so let's just, let's just go to the courtroom. Let's... let's Give an example here from the courtroom. Let's say that um, uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff is a judge here, and Jeff is, uh, and Jeff and I are very good friends. And um, but I have found myself in Jeff's courtroom because I have been found speeding 50 miles an hour in a school zone. All right, and the fine for that is ten thousand dollars. It's Louisiana. You know, it's, um, he has not recused himself either. So, so I am in Jeff's courtroom, and Jeff says, uh, how do you plead? And I say, well, Your Honor, I, I, was, I was going on a job interview. I wasn't paying. I'm sorry. I was thinking about the interview. I was kind of nervous, and I just, just blew through the school zone. I am terribly sorry. Um, and so Jeff summons me to the bench, and he says, Frank, what is wrong with you? 15, you God, you're so lucky you didn't kill somebody. He said, look, I'm going to let you go this time, but you better not ever be in my court again. How merciful was Jeff? Very. Very. Yeah, very. How do the parents feel about that? Yeah, very bad. So merciful. But how did justice do? Justice was compromised for the sake of mercy, right? We all agree, would agree with that. Well, let's go back to the courtroom for a minute. And, um, and I say, Your Honor, I am sorry. Um, interviewing, not thinking. Um, uh, sorry. And he takes the gavel and he slams it down and he says, Guilty as charged. The fine is $10,000, which I don't have. But because Jeff loves me so much, he stands up from behind his judge's bench. He removes his judicial robes. He comes from around the bench and goes to the bailiff. He pulls out his checkbook and he writes a check 
to the state of Louisiana or wherever for $10,000. What's the fine? $10,000. Was justice satisfied? Was mercy extended? See, God, in his wisdom and his love and his knowledge of you and me and his patience, determined a way where he could be both just and not compromise his justice and merciful as the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. This is what the apostle Paul wrote. Remember, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. Now, here's the next verse. I introduced you to that earlier in the evening. And are justified, found not guilty as a what? What is that word there? Gift by his grace through the redemption. That's the purchasing back, right? You redeem something, you buy it back through the redemption, which is in, we're going to spend a lot of time with a two-letter word next week, which is in Christ Jesus. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness, his perfection at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies him, her, who has faith in Jesus. So I hope you see that. Both just and the one who pays the penalty for our rebellion. So the gift is there. Now, gifts can be extended, but gifts don't necessarily have to be received. But let's just say for a moment, um, uh, Billy and, uh, and I are, are having a conversation, and I understand that, that Billy, whom I deeply care for, has, um, has something which is going to take his life. And I have come up with a means whereby... I can give this to Billy, and it will save his life. And I want to give it to him. He's not going to pay for it. It's a gift. And so, Billy, here's the, here it is. This is going to save your life. It's a gift. Would you like to have it? Sure. Of course. Now, how much good does it do you in my hands? Not much. When does it do you good? When it's in your hands, exactly right. This is not hard stuff. This is really easy. Okay. So, so I can extend the gift and Billy could slap my hand away and say, no, thank you. I'm going to do this myself. I don't need your gift. Or Billy can realize, I trust Frank. He's extended a gift to me. And I want to receive that gift. See, the gift does its good when we accept it. The gift does no good as it sits in my hand. See, we are justified as a gift by his grace, but the gift has to be accepted. The challenge for me to accept that gift is I have to be willing to admit all of my goodness, all of my efforts, as well-meaning as they have been, as fine as they are, are not acceptable to a holy God. That's what the Bible says. 
And because God knew that and knows that, in his great love for each and every one of us, though he is perfectly holy, in his great mercy and wisdom and knowing us and patience, he made the way. First week of Alpha, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you're going to come to me, you have to come to the Father. You have to come through me. I am, I am the gift is what Christ is saying. The gift is Christ himself. The gift is Christ's righteousness for my unrighteousness. Christ's perfection for my imperfection. Trusting Jesus as my only means of having Joy in the dash, meaning and purpose in the dash, and then what you and I can only imagine in the line. So when we respond, when we respond, when we receive the gift, the, the remedy, the rescue, um, the pollution of sin is removed. The power of sin is broken. And the penalty of sin, the separation is paid and is no longer there, it's a big price that God paid for us. Let's just say you're at somebody's house and um, they went off to, to run an errand and uh, there's a knock at the door. It's the postman that says, um, sorry, I had to bring this letter back because the person that lives here didn't put enough postage on it. Well, how much do you need? I, uh, it's 28 cents. And you pull out 50 cents and you tell them to keep the change. All right. And, and so... What was needed was paid. But let's say there's a knock on the door. My friend's gone. And it's somebody coming to foreclose his house because he owes $300,000 on the house and hasn't paid his mortgage for the last six months. And I take out my Venmo or my checkbook and I make a check payable for $300,000 to the bank. Now, with a 28-cent stamp, you say, that's kind. Thank you very much. But you pay a $300,000 mortgage that's going to leave you homeless. There's going to be a little bit of difference. Remember early on, I, I quoted you from John Stott. We understand neither the seriousness of sin, we minimize it. I did that. Or the majesty, the awesomeness, the awfulness of this God. See, and this is what we see. This, this scripture I brought you last. Well, I'm sorry. So we read this. For the wages of sin is separation. But, I'm grateful there's a big but in Romans 6.23. But... The free gift of God is eternal life in, there's that word, Christ Jesus. There's bad news, really bad news. But there is really, really good news. News better than we can imagine if what the Bible says is the truth. The question is, what am I going to do with that? And so... For God so loved the world that he gave his only son 
that whoever believes in him, we're going to talk a lot more next week about believes, I think I've said that the last two weeks, should not perish. That is, uh, should not be eternally separated from him, but have life that lasts forever, eternal life. And so I've asked you to do this before. This is the truth here. I'm not trying to be artistic here or poetic. This is, if what the Bible says is true, this is the truth. For God so loved, fill in your name, that he gave his only begotten son, so that if believe in him, you should not, will not perish, but have eternal life, forgiven, brought to God. Now, um, at your tables, your table host has, um, has a, uh, a little card that I'd love for you guys. If you could just take a second to pass those cards around, if you have them, please. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to read them to you in a minute. So uh, if we don't have enough for everybody, just make sure the guests get those. Now, what I'm going to do is, is just read to you here. Um, so, so some people may ask... Let me know if everybody, anybody not have one. Okay, good. Okay, so just, okay, just, I got your attention back. Can I get your attention back here just for a moment? Okay, so in March of 1976, um, I went to this little church and two, uh, they may have been undergraduates from LSU, talk to me about some of the things that we're talking about tonight. And that night, I just sat down with them and with God and said, okay, I surrender. If you want my life, you can have it. And the next day, something was different that I cannot explain. I just can't explain it to you. Um, but I want you to understand this. There is nothing that we are talking about here that has anything to do with denomination. If you are here in Catholic fine. If you're here in Presbyterian, fine. If you're here in non-denominational or whatever your ilk of denomination is, that's nothing to do with what we're talking about. I can't, I've read the Bible a few times. I've never found one word about a denomination. They're either those who have received the gift or those who have not received the gift. And so I, I just want you to read through this with me. Now, again, this may be something that is what is in your heart tonight. Please take this with you. But this is something like you may want to say to God if this is making sense to you. It says, God, I know I've been a meologist trying to improve and save myself on my own terms, not yours. I realize now that I need you. And want you to be my savior. I cannot save myself. By faith, I humbly receive your gift of eternal life. I believe you are the son of God who died on the cross in payment for my sins. And rose from the dead on the third day to give me new life. Thank you for coming to earth to rescue me, to save me. Thank you for bearing and forgiving my sins and giving me the gift of eternal life. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and be my Lord and Savior 
now in the dash and forever in the line. Amen. Amen. Um, the, the, the Bible says if you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord, take over. If you believe that in, the, in your heart, forever God has forgiven and accepted you. Now, if that sounds too good to be true, it's not, if what the Bible says is true. And many have that story. And tonight at your tables, I want to encourage you guys, ask your table host, what happened to you? What's, what's your story? Um, so, so next week, I'm not going to ask you to come back again. Um, now, maybe I will. But next week really rounds out these first four weeks. Next week is, can I be sure about what I believe? Can I be certain of my position with God, my relationship with God? I never believed that I could. And most of us didn't believe that we could. But the Bible says that we can. And it's going to be fun to show you what the Bible says concerning that. So um, let's just take a quick break. Hustle back to our tables. Thank you guys very much for coming. And I really, really hope to see you next week. Thank you for being here.